You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 129 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me today is Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? I am fantastic. That's good to hear. I want to mention that support for today's show comes from Shutterstock. Every business needs high-quality images to attract and keep customers. Whether you're making brochures or ads or putting the final touches on your next tweet, the visuals you use are proven to make a big difference. Get started today with a 20% discount at Shutterstock.com slash Apple Insider. Neil, we've talked a lot about professional users of Macs. Mm-hmm. on this show. We we talked about it at Adorama. We've talked about it several episodes going. And there was a story that we wrote about today that I spotted that was about the editing of the film Baby Driver, mm-hmm. which is, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name, Edgar... Right. Right. That's what I thought, yeah. British filmmaker, Ed- yep. Mm-hmm. Well, he's done a lot of things. He's done The World's End. He did the Spaced movie, um, you know, a space TV show. Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Uh, well, the Cornet Trilogy was Shaun was of the Dead. supposed to do Ant-Man. Didn't bailed on Ant-Man because his vision didn't align with what everyone else was thinking. Yeah, no one really knows what happened there. In the comics, Ant-Man became a wife beater. Um, Marvel didn't really want to do that. So maybe that had something to do with it. But he still did get a partial credit on the script, which, by the way, Ant-Man's a great movie. But uh, Shaun of the Dead, uh, Hot Fuzz, mm-hmm. World's mm-hmm. End which is yep. the Cornetto trilogy space, yep. the TV show that came before those, uh, very talented filmmaker. Scott Pilgrim was one of his Scott Pilgrim is one of my favorites. Yeah. And so if, if you like these movies, you're watching Edgar Wright's movies, but you're mm-hmm. also watching the work of film editor, Paul Maclis. And so Maclis did something unusual for this film. And that is normally when you're editing a film, the film has all been shot. All of the footage has been done. It's all been taken. Mm-hmm. And you're in a little edit suite in a room somewhere with a nice air conditioner and a dark lighting. And you edit after the fact. And, and sometimes you're there with the director who can watch over and see that the edits match up to what his vision was or her vision was for that matter. But in, in this case, Edgar Wright called Paul and said, listen, I think I need you out here on the set every day, which is really unusual. And... So what happened is that uh, Maclis took a MacBook Pro and an external keyboard and an external display and put them on a little cart and took this cart with him pretty much from set to set, including because this is a high-speed chase movie. You know, the the uh, setup mm-hmm. for this movie is that the getaway car driver is named Baby and he has tinnitus. And so to block out the ringing in his ears, he's always listening to a soundtrack. And that soundtrack forms the soundtrack for the movie, which is a, a neat little twist. But in order to time the music with the speed chases and all the other things that happen in the movie, the editor was sitting there on site, on set, timing everything. And they'd look over and say, so did you get it? You know, How's it look? Does it look like it's right? And he would verify them so that they could reshoot right on the spot. Yeah, well, the the soundtrack is an integral part of the movie, and, and uh, Kid Koala, a famous uh, DJ, um, helped out with the soundtrack. And one of the things that they did was they had gotten all the music cleared ahead of time, which is one of those things that uh, somewhat unconventional sometimes for movies. They'll try to get certain songs, and then it turns out they can't, and they have to go back and redo it. With this movie, they got all the music cleared ahead of time. Kid Koala did the mix, and then when they had the stunt drivers on set, they had little speakers in the car, so they were even doing stuff in time with the music. So it was a, it's a movie where the 
the sound is very much an important part of the film. Um, and so to in a somewhat unconventional style, Edgar Wright being a super talented dude, um, had the audio mixing done on the set. And this is the kind of thing that can only be done with, uh, you know, the software and hardware uh, that you can get through Apple products and what they offer. And obviously not an Apple made application that they were using for the sound mixing, but regardless, very unique and interesting and pretty exciting use, I think, of, uh, of a MacBook. Yeah. And it was all done on Avid, mm-hmm. actually. Which is which is cool, you know. Avid has been a long time uh, Mac application, yeah. And this is another way of using these kind of products in the field. What was interesting to me was that within Avid, he was using the storyboards that they'd drawn. Because whenever you're making a movie, the first thing you do is you draw up storyboards that match up to the script that show what the camera is supposed to shoot, suppose what the light is, shows what the framing is. So in Avid, in the editor, he had the storyboards in there, timed so that he could see that the shots matched up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's he calls it the most difficult edit and the hardest job that he'd ever worked on <laughs> i can imagine and doing it all on the road doing it outdoors sometimes doing it strapped in the back of a truck kind of thing as the chases are going on around you mm-hmm. is uh is definitely a very different kind of production setting for an editor and, and that's part of what's so exciting about um uh, modern technology and the world that we live in now is the ability to kind of make these things and do unconventional uh, things because of the the portability of it, the accessibility. So you see so many uh, films now where they you know they shoot on iPhone or whatever, and and a lot of times that's a gimmick. But in some in some movies that come out, it's very much a, a necessity of the need to have cameras that can get in places that you wouldn't be able to get them in before. You know, now you can shoot. 4k on a little iphone um to get 4k just a few years ago was a huge undertaking you know you think about when christopher nolan did uh the dark knight and uh certain scenes were shot in imax just the size of the reel in imax and the size of the cameras they had to shoot with and all that limited the the imax shots to certain scenes within the movie not even in entire the entire film right and so now we're getting to a point where those limitations of these bulky giant things that you had to use to edit to film to do all that are now getting down to the size of things that you can put in your pocket and we talk a lot on this podcast about the excitement that we have for the iPad and what that means for the future of computing. And again, uh, that's one of those things where the portability of it is so small and so light that you can do things like, you know, view footage from a 4K film on set instantly as you shoot it to make sure that you're getting the shot in the right color and everything else that you need. That things like even five years ago would have cost you tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment are now accessible not only to consumers, but to professionals that use these type of tools. Absolutely. You know, I just got asked, uh, two days ago by someone, you know, is, is the iPad a suitable replacement for a Mac is the question that I was asked. And I don't think it is yet, No, but I think we're heading in that direction. And it depends on your use case and it depends on, you know, where your comfort level is too. There's going to be a whole generation of kids that grow up having use touchscreens to type and to interact and all that. And it may be that, uh, you know, while us using a keyboard may be faster, um, alternative ways of doing it, you know, it's like uh, I, I saw something a, a couple of years ago, I think it was, it was like the, the texting world championships or something stupid like that, right? And, uh, you know, there was like a guy using swipe and there was a guy using the standard keyboard and the guy using the standard keyboard wasn't even that much slower than the guy using swipe, like the third party keyboard. Like you just get used to these things and they just work. 
Absolutely. So let's move on to talking about that thing that everyone wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. iPhone 8. Oh, I thought you were going to say Google Plus. Well, I could, <laughs> but uh, you know what? I'm going to save that in my back pocket for a little later on. And we will dedicate that part of our portion to the Google Insider program. I want to talk about facial recognition because, yeah. you know, we, we sort of spoke about this last time where people were talking about facial recognition and you were talking about some of the difficulties that it can present. Yes. And, um, and, and, and we did have a few listeners um, who took issue with some of my comments last week. No. Um, <laughs> Which I, which is fine. I mean, I don't I'm mind. Sure. I don't mind the the debate. Certainly, I, I think that's great. And obviously, we like having people listen. That's good too. Um, I was kind of amused though that the uh, pe- people are so ready to either embrace or dismiss something before it's announced. Which is why when we talked about this last week, the very first thing I said was that I didn't really want to talk about it because it's not fair and it's all kind of a moot point, right? Like I have my reservations about um, not only how well. Uh, facial recognition login might work on an iPhone, but uh, also security implications of it. Like I talked about, just walking by your phone or having it unlocked and somebody could pick it up or somebody mugs you and holds it up to your face and then their phone's unlocked, you know? Um, but I can't really complain about that because nothing's been announced. So until it's announced, who knows? And this could all be a moot point because although there have been rumors that the next iPhone won't have Touch ID, when it ships with Touch ID, if it does, then we all look like a bunch of idiots for debating it. So Well, for, first of all, Let's, let's say this. We expect that the iPhone 8 is going to ship sometime in the fall slash winter, right? It's a Q4-ish thing. Yes? yes. Yes. Okay. I would say that based on timelines needed for production and shipping, that this decision was made already. I would agree. That whatever we're going to get was already decided upon a few months ago at the very latest, and that this thing is well on its way. And and so there are people who know in this world exactly what we will see in the winter, mm-hmm. and they aren't saying a word, which is fine. And all of this talk and debate is over nothing because it is a fait accompli. We are getting what will be made. Correct. But we're getting the news now because these things leak as more people in the supply chain catch wind of it. So... Again, I still would be very surprised if Apple ditched Touch ID on the high-end iPhone. Now, if they do ditch Touch ID for technical reasons or just for convenience or whatever, uh, how they replace it will be very interesting to see. But the reason that we're seeing these things now is not because Apple just made the decision, although some reports try to portray it as that. The reason that we're seeing these things now is because it's coming through the supply chain and they're starting to ramp up production, doing test builds, those sorts of things. Yeah. And so and people it may not seeing. be news per se, but it's new to us. Correct. So the, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, is you had mentioned those, those difficulties with facial recognition that you were concerned about or situations where you thought it wouldn't be advantageous to use. Right. And I was thinking back to WWDC where Tim Cook talked about how they're putting machine learning in everything. And we've seen some AR kit demos and we've seen some AI demos where the camera recognizes someone and says, you know, this is a young male who is happy and it's well lit, right? They can identify several different characteristics about a photo. Mm -hmm. And so my speculation is that they can identify you, right? They can identify your eye sockets, your chin, your nose, a combination of those facial features. They can identify the patterns or lines or spots on your skin. Um, 
they can identify a whole bunch of things and that if you do it in combination with, you know, a face that you commonly make, right? So you're telling then, me I have to smile at my phone to unlock it? That's that's vaguely condescending, right? The <laughs> the You have to you be happy to use the iPhone. Why don't why don't you smile more? That's you, so you must smile <laughs> you must smile this big to use the iPhone. Nice. Very good. Well done. Um but that that there are a bunch of characteristics that you can use to make a photo more unique rather than less unique in combination with the artificial intelligence and machine learning. Mm-hmm. That maybe all of those things together combine to be authentication. Yeah, and and I'm excited to see how this plays out. And I am obviously, uh, when I'm complaining about facial recognition, it's purely for entertainment purposes. Anybody that interpreted my complaints last week as some sort of condemnation of Apple is not really listening to what I said, which is that we shouldn't even be having the discussion until the product's announced. But, you know, short of having a camera lens that can capture 180 degrees, uh, or I, I suppose it would be 360 degrees around it facing upward, you would have to have the phone pointing at your face in order to unlock it, which is not a great use for uh, uh, some cases of, of Apple Pay, for example, where you might be reaching across a counter and you would have to kind of angle your, up at your face to make sure that you could... And that just doesn't seem like a very good use case to me. Now, what's interesting is we have this patent here for facial recognition, and it's a patent that was... Let's see. And I'm, I'm only pausing because I want to make sure that I get this right. So this is... A patent application that's the descendant of a bunch of different filings that dated back to 2007, mm-hmm. but their most recently published document is a 2013 patent grant. And the patent here credits Tony Fidel, Andrew Hodge, Stephen Schell, Ruben Caballero, Jesse Lee Dorugusker, Stephen Stesky, and Emery Sanford as the inventors. Mm-hmm. So Tony Fidel left in 2008 and Zadesky, who was in charge of the self-driving car project for a while, left last year. So that that part about Zadesky being credited here doesn't surprise me, but the one that says that Tony Fidel is, is a part of the invention group, um, when this was first filed for in December of 2013, is interesting to me. Let me take you way, way back to 2010, when we were waiting on the mythical Apple tablet. And uh, it was a couple of months before it was announced. Uh, it was announced March of that year. And uh, the, or it may have even been earlier, maybe in January, but anyhow, uh, it was early in the year. And the Wall Street Journal had a report that came out that said that uh, it was going to do facial recognition on the first gen model. Now, here we are seven years later, and it still doesn't do that. Uh, but the idea was, um, and assuming that these sources at the Wall Street Journal didn't just make this up, uh, the idea was that Apple, in, in at one point in the development process, saw the iPad as one device for the whole family. You pick up your iPad, it recognizes your face, and then there are your apps, and it's your device. You hand it off, it recognizes someone else, it switches over. The home screen changes, it becomes a dynamic device. Um, and I thought that was pretty exciting when I read that, and that's why I've remembered it in the years uh, since. Uh, and it never came to be. But this idea that anyone would be surprised that Apple is just, you know cooked up facial recognition the last couple of years is kind of silly. Of course, they've been working on it for a while. They've they've acquired multiple uh, 
companies that do facial recognition, augmented reality, and all kinds of you know facial mapping. They acquired a company that did uh, digital animation uh, to make realistic uh, uh, facial movements on digital characters and stuff. And it's like, why did they buy that company? Why did they buy um, the company that made Connect for Xbox? Not for the stuff that the companies were making, but for the technology behind it. The right. 3D sensing capabilities of Connect, the facial recognition capabilities of motion capture, etc. Uh, and I wasn't suggesting surprise that they'd been working no, on it I, this no. long. I was suggesting surprise that Tony's name was there yeah. in December of 2013 when he left the company in 2008. And what that tells us is that they've been working on this, you know, like, long, like I said, filings dating back to 2007. Right. And so when they filed this in 2013, they rightfully remembered that he'd contributed and right. made sure to put his name on it. Right. And, and that's why I say this rumor was around as far back as 2010, because Apple's probably been working on this for a very long time. And this is just kind of a no brainer in terms of the progress of computing. Facial recognition technology has numerous uh, advantages that go beyond just login and security. Well, so the, the point of all of this, the point of any of this is to make things as frictionless as possible. Correct. To remove friction. And so there we had the swipe to unlock, which we had to, to teach people to use because we had the label that said swipe to unlock on it. Mm-hmm. And that people picked up pretty quickly. And now we have the, the put your finger on the touch ID and it unlocks almost instantly on the mm-hmm. newer phones or press the home button, which is what people were doing anyway to unlock, which is, is again, a little bit less friction because you simply put your finger down where you were going to put it anyway. Right. The e- Each one of these steps is about reducing friction, making things more transparent and more accessible and, and more secure. Quick. And and security is is one of the goals of this, yes. And and I mentioned that um, in the comments last week to some people that were disagreeing with me that, you know, despite my complaints, people will adapt. Um, if if how we unlock our phone changes and we no longer press a button or uh, it no longer senses our fingerprint, We've done this before. We went from slide to unlock to to pressing the button and holding our finger there. And as you s- talk about making it frictionless, uh, and we mentioned this a little bit on the podcast last week as well, it, there is some learning curve with Touch ID, right? Because anybody who's never used Touch ID before always presses the button. They always press the button. And once you learn, just let your thumb rest there and don't press the button, uh, then you go, oh, okay, and then it clicks and you get it. But there is a huge market of people out there who uh, still struggle with that very basic thing that you and I think is simple and take for granted that acts as some sort of a barrier to using it. Um, and I don't know what the numbers are. I wonder how many people don't even bother setting up Touch ID because of it, because it annoys well, them, because they can't figure it out. Sees in the most recent couple of operating systems they put out, if you're setting up a fresh phone, they encourage it. Right. They they strongly they try. encourage it as they, the they onboarding try, steps. And I'm, and, and I'm sure that that works with a lot of people, but I wonder how many opt out. Well, you have to find the very, very tiny mouse type that that says skip this step right. or it's, don't they add make passcode. It, and, then they, and then when you try to not – because I'll have to reinstall betas and stuff, so I just want to deal with the passcode and reentering my thumb – print every time so i'll try to opt out and say don't do a passcode and then the the dialogue that pops up is kind of confusing it's like are you sure you want to enter a passcode and then like you hit continue and then it takes you back to entering a passcode or but then there's another option there and like sometimes i'll like have to read it twice and be like which button do i press again to not enter a passcode right because they are intentionally encouraging people to well and they're intentionally encouraging six digit passcodes which are more secure than four digit passcodes right and 
this is a part of their practice for for trying to help people become more secure. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't see any fault with it. No, I, I don't have I don't have a problem with that either. I, I think it's a good thing, and I think that uh, facial recognition login is fric- more frictionless, if if that's the right way to put it. Uh, then has less friction has thank you uh, has less friction than than touch id in many ways and i think that many users again as i said last week would find uh facial recognition or as people have taken to branding it now face id uh, i think that that would be preferable to many users um and i think that you know old habits die hard and some people are going to be frustrated by it and uh some people are going to be excited by it and then some people it's just going to make sense for them and they will happily embrace it well, I, like all of these things, the first time a feature is introduced, and e- even when a feature is in- included like this and has been for years, there's always a way to turn it off. If it's, e- even if they're encouraging it strongly through use, there is still always the option to either set it and then disable it after the fact in settings or simply skip it in the initial setup steps. You know, I, I think back to the iPhone 4S when Siri first debuted. Uh, I got my 4S secondhand by someone who bought it and then decided to resell it a month later. And the reason that he was reselling it at that time was because he did not like Siri and <laughs> had not realized that he could turn it off in settings. <laughs> Accidentally pressing the button in his pocket or something? Um, I think what he really intended to do was voice style. He liked voice styling phone contacts, which is something that you could do on the 3GS and didn't like the changed behavior. Here's what I would like in a future iOS hardware software combination, iPhone, iPad, whatever you want it to be, that I think would be the perfect implementation of security is more granular control for the user, right? So we have well, these this passwords. This is the balance. This is the balance of it, right? Is first of all, there's nothing as such, there's no such thing as perfect security. Obviously, no. I, but uh, you know, we, we need to get rid of the password. The passwords suck. Nobody wants to use a password that we forget well, them. They're annoying. Password policies also suck. Yeah, it, it's just a big problem. And so, you know, when your bank says that you have to have a password that consists of 64 digits, two numerals, two symbols, upper and lower case, and it has to have a beginning, middle, and end, and plot point. Um, we, we have a broken system for setting passwords and everyone's got different requirements, right? Six digits, eight digits can't be more than 10 digits. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some, some institutions that have password policies that do their very best to forbid password managers, right. which we'll also talk about a little later in the program. Uh, passwords as a means of securing identity are one of those things where we still do it because we haven't settled completely on what the better replacement is. It, it It is a necessary evil, and that is why it remains a fallback on iPhone, iOS, because it's a good means of security. What I would like to see is let's get rid of the password entirely, and let's do multi-factor biometric authentication on your iPhone. Let's do a combination of technology that's already there, which would be microphones for voice recognition and touch ID for fingerprint recognition. Let's add an advanced 3D sensing camera for facial recognition. And let's do some combination of those things. So you always have a fallback in case you forget your password or God forbid your finger gets blown off or something like that. So if if my fingers and my eyes don't match, then I can't use my phone. I think that when I say granular 
control, right? So one of the security features in iOS right now for people that have an iPhone or iPad with Touch ID, if you haven't unlocked it in 24 hours, it requires you to enter your password. And if you haven't used your password in the last week, it has you enter your password. That's a security measure to make sure that people can't crack the system and it can't be abused and, and that sort of thing, right? So what if rather than falling back on the password, we just then went to another form of, of biometric authentication and it said, well, we don't want your fingerprint today. We have to see your face today. Um, that would be one way of getting rid of the password. Now, what if it was contextual? So what if you're home on Wi-Fi and uh, it knows your known Wi-Fi network, it knows your location because of GPS in the phone and and uh, triangulation through cellular and Wi-Fi and all that kind of stuff, um, and it requires less or even no security credentials at home if you opt into well, that feature well, versus... I'm uncomfortable with that specific example because I'm uncomfortable with the notion that Wi-Fi can be spoofed. Sure, but there are there are ways for the phone to do more than just the Wi-Fi to authenticate. GPS, for example, uh, cellular uh, triangulation, etc. And it wouldn't even have to be to turn off. I mean, I'm just spitballing here, obviously. But it wouldn't even have to be to turn off the security. It could be if I'm out and about. I want two-factor authentication: scan my face and my fingerprint and my voice, or some combination of thereof. Two out of three, right? If I'm at home, one's fine. Uh. I am less comfortable with that. Why? I, uh, for the, what I just said, you know, I, I get the location, but if for whatever reason I am, am uh, you know, a threat vector would be replace someone's Wi-Fi at their house or spoof someone's Wi-Fi at their house. But this is what a lot of and security companies are doing right now is they're, they're measuring the threat level of the current use case. How likely right. is it that this person is actually trying to break into an account based on the activity that they're doing right now? And so you see this, I mean, it's good enough for banks. It's good enough for, uh, 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 banks are in the past, <laughs> but this is what they're, banks. they, they measure the threat level of the current attempt to log in and they will dynamically in some cases with some of these companies, uh, you know, these new identity recognition companies and security companies coming out, they will require a greater or lesser level of authentication based on the context of the use. And so it doesn't even have to be location-based or home or whatever. Uh, again, it could just be that example that I gave of the fallback. Uh, we haven't seen your face in a week. We need to scan your face to unlock the phone this week and just get rid of the password entirely. We talk about making it frictionless and easier for users. I think getting rid of the password has to be Apple's ultimate goal here. How do you get to that goal where you no longer have to enter a password for your iCloud login, for your Safari keychain uh, for your um, just accessing the device. How do you yeah. get to a point where you no longer need to enter a password? I think that multi-factor biometric authentication is the way. And I think that you already have two out of the three capable on the phone with the hardware. The microphone is enough, presumably, and Touch ID is already there. So I would hate to see Touch ID go away. We're going to presumably bring in facial recognition. That adds a third one. Um, I, I think that that offers a lot of potential to make devices even easier to use and at the same time even more secure. Getting rid of the password, is it going to be a hard hill to climb? It is. It's uh, it's definitely something that I would like to see them achieve. They would be the first to actually pull it off in a, in a way that really would work well. We'll see if we get there. And then, you know, depending on how advanced Apple's technology is, you not only have facial recognition, but also iris scanning. Uh, is another easy form, well, easy in quotes, form of, uh, of uh, 
you know, it compared to some of the other biometric uh, forms that are a little more difficult. Apple has patents for this stuff. You know, when Touch, when Touch ID first came out, uh, one of the patents that I really liked that I thought was cool was if you really want, like, let's say you got a government phone or whatever, right? And you really want to lock it down. Not only would you do fingerprint scanning, Touch ID, but you'd also do a combination of fingerprints in a specific order. So only you would know my left index finger, my right thumb, and then my right index finger unlocks my phone or just two fingers or whatever. Adding that level of complexity to the biometrics then makes it more secure. And those are the kind of things that you could do to ultimately just get rid of the password. Yes. One of the other cool things that we've seen people try for over the years that hasn't caught on uh, yet has been wireless charging. Now, yes. a, a brief history of this is that there are a couple of different standards of wireless charging out there and a couple of different working groups out there. And that from time to time, you'll see it pop up as a feature in a phone. Uh, a good example would have been the early Palm Pre, mm -hmm. which had a, a wireless charging built into the handset and then used a device they called the Touchstone that was its charging base. Uh, we saw this a few years back in Starbucks, where Starbucks was mounting wireless charging pods inside their tables, so you could sit at Starbucks and wirelessly charge your phone. Uh, IKEA now is selling furniture that will allow you to wirelessly charge your phone, but it doesn't make the dent that it needs to make in the world if your phone doesn't have wireless charging capabilities, and not every Android phone does, Not and certainly no iPhones at this time do, and... And the advantages so it's, it's are hard to have that that widespread adoption when there are different standards floating around and and a mix of phones that are able or not able. Mm -hmm. You were about to say. I, I mean, I, the advantages of it are, are limited too. It's it's not like people are going out of their way to embrace wireless charging. I don't know that people care that much. Well, it's incredibly convenient. So a few years ago, we reviewed a battery case that had wireless charging built into the battery case. Yeah. Um, it was a product from a company whose name was spelled UNU, and I think they were MyUNU was how they pronounced yeah. it. And they they did the same thing that everyone else has done, which was to have a charging base, and you set your phone down on the charging base. And just the act of not having to plug in the cable reduced friction. It was, it was so easy to have, you know, you have a place where you're going to commonly charge anyway, whether right. it's your bedside night table or your kitchen counter or you know, uh, a desk or a coffee table, but you have a charger plugged in in a common location and you don't move it around a whole lot. And so being able to just rest the phone where it needed to go and have it charge was incredibly convenient. The idea of building wireless charging into every iPhone opens up a huge amount of possibilities for building this into kitchen counters, building into the table, building into your desk at work, and would be very cool. It would it would reduce friction for charging a lot. I would see more value with this in something like my MacBook than I would with my iPhone. Well, if you had a MacBook 12 inch, I could see it as possible. You know, a laptop that sips power. Yeah. Work. Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not as excited by this as I am um, the quick charge capability. It's supposed to come to the iPhone 8. Yeah, I think both of those things would be good and welcome. Uh, I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm not Apple builds like, phones for more people than just you or I, obviously. Obviously, I, I, I get the feeling that Apple's not very excited about this either. It's kind of one of those, all right, you've been asking us for years, we'll do it kind of things. But I don't think well, we care that much. So the, this this is a good question, right? We talk about things being tentpole features, and what are the killer features that are going to go out and get someone to spend on the very newest one? And is wireless charging that feature for the 7s? Yes. 
Okay. I, the, you I, know, uh, we, we, people talk, right? People say the, you know, has the seven been enough of an improvement over the six or the six S? And, and some people felt that it was, but a lot of people felt like it wasn't necessarily. They were waiting for the next big one. So would wireless charging be enough of an ad? I think for a lot of people, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't really care, but I think that a lot of people will find it appealing. Um, I would like to see it combined with some sort of a magnetic attachment type thing where, you know, like a car mount or something, that would be pretty cool. You know, you need directions I hate, to snap. I, I don't want more magnets. <laughs> I would like to see it, um, you know, optional magnet, but to work with a certain, uh, you know, combination of magnetic and charging, type, you know, smart connector mm-hmm. type of thing. Um, I think that would have some utility for me. But other than that, uh, so the rumor is uh, that the iPhone 8 and iPhone 7S are all going to get not only... Uh, inductive contact-based wireless charging on like a pad or whatever, uh, but also uh, USB 3, power over USB 3 uh, fast charging capabilities. Now, unfortunately, uh, there are a few rumors that, that make this less exciting if you're looking to buy a new iPhone this fall. First of all, apparently much like with the portrait mode on iPhone 7 Plus last year, Um, The rumor is that while the hardware will be there for wireless charging on the phones this year, the software is having a little bit of trouble coming together. And so it may be one of those things that comes with a later software update. So think, you know, September, the phone launches, October, maybe you get iOS 11.1, which adds the wireless charging capability. Um, You know, waiting a month is not that big of a deal. I think everyone will be all right. Uh, But the other rumors are that it will not ship with a wireless charging uh, dock in the box uh, that you'll have to buy it separately. The accessory is a separate item. Now, it's possible that maybe they'll bundle it with the iPhone 8 if it's a premium, you know, and, and they want to throw everything in the box kind of thing. Um, well, but the it's... 7S probably will not ship with it. And if we're looking at the um, iPhone, or I'm sorry, the iPad Pro that just came out, uh, which shipped with a ridiculous 12-watt adapter uh, and also offers quick charge capabilities over USB 3.0. I would not expect any of the new iPhones to ship with uh, faster w- wired charging in the box. You'll have to buy that separately, too. And that's right. just an example of Apple being too cheap. Here's, here, Noel, you say too cheap. Here's how I think about it, right? When they introduced the iPhone 7 without headphone jack, they supplied the wired headphones with lightning connector mm-hmm. and the adapter. Yeah, right? I was fine with that. I thought that was the right way to do it. And that was the right way to do it because it meant that you could use the feature either with the headphones provided or with your own headphones. And if we talk about the phone being a music device, then that's a necessary thing. You have to be able to use it as a music device. But as long as they supply a charge cable of any type in the in the box and even the one watt adapter, then they will have supplied something that you can use the feature with, even if it's not the best of the, the abilities, right? You can buy the accessory 24-watt charger. You can buy the accessory wireless charger. But just with what you get in the box, you can charge your phone. Okay, fine. But here's the real... You think I'm splitting hairs. Well, but I think here's the real problem. And this is this is what happened. My guess. I don't have any inside baseball on this or inside information on this. But here's what happened. Apple put USB-C on the MacBook Pro 
people are still complaining about it. They responded by giving discounts on USB-C accessories. If you don't think that Apple is somewhat phased by the reaction, you have to look at the fact that they gave a discount on that for like six months and ate like $200 in every monitor they sold. Apple didn't want to do that, but they did because people freaked out. They saw the reaction of that for the Mac, which sells three, four, five million in a quarter. Then they went to the iPad and said, hmm, well, we could do fast charging, but you can only do it over a USB-C connector with our 29-watt adapter. If we ship this thing with a USB-C adapter in the box instead of a USB-A adapter, and nobody can plug it into their legacy MacBook Pro, only our new one, and they, can, they can't plug it into their old wall chargers, only the new one, they're going to freak out. So it wasn't even a matter of Apple being cheap, I don't think. I think it was just a matter of them being afraid of people saying, wait, my new iPad comes with a full-size USB or doesn't come with a full-size USB plug. I can't plug it in my computer to charge it. I can't plug it in my computer to sync it. I can't plug it in my old wall adapters that I have laying around my apartment. I think that they freaked out about the possibility of people, you know, having a bad reaction. And so they they took a conservative route. The problem with that is Apple sells the iPad as a PC replacement. So they shouldn't worry about that. They should say what you have in the box is the best way to experience this device. They should have shipped it with the USB-C to lightning cable and the 29-watt power adapter. And they didn't, and that was a mistake. And I'm guessing they're going to do the same thing again with the iPhone because, if anything, they would do it with the iPad first because that would be a smaller market. You know, they're selling 12 million iPads in a quarter. When you're selling 75 million iPhones in a quarter, you're going to have people freak out when they can't get a cable out of the box that plugs in. They need to go find an old lightning cable to plug it into their computer or do whatever with it. I just don't... If, 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 if it requires a USB-C to lightning cable to get the USB 3 power charging, they're going to sell it separately. And it's not even because of the cost. It's because people would freak out. All right. Let's move something a little bit more esoteric, let's say. Okay. Laser beams. Freaking lasers. Laser beams. Lasers. Yes. So Apple is working on implementing a rear-facing laser system that... We're talking about it in this context of iPhone 8. The point of it would be for augmented reality and for fast autofocus. Mm -hmm. Because when you can target something with a laser, you can see exactly how distant it is. Mm -hmm. And when you have accurate depth mapping, then you can do all kinds of things in terms of photography and, as I say, augmented reality. So currently, ARKit, which is the augmented reality system that people are using to uh, develop augmented reality for iPhone... And, and iPad relies on algorithms that it's deriving from optical information from the camera. Right. Adding lasers means it has simply more information, yeah, more, more accurate accuracy. information. This is expected to happen with the forward-facing camera this year. Um, it's still in flux as to whether it's going to be, at least in terms of the, how the rumors go, it's in flux, as to whether it will be in the rear-facing camera. Uh, a few months ago, Ming-Chi Kuo of KGI Securities, everybody's favorite analyst, um, said that he thinks that this year it will only be in the forward-facing camera for the... Um, you know, obviously augmented reality air kit things for, you know, messing around with your face, I guess, like fancy Snapchat filters, but also for the login, the quote unquote face ID. And then those features will then come to the rear facing camera next year. That always sounded a little weird to me, um, just because it would make sense to put it on the rear camera just as much for the examples that you just gave of sensing distance, focus, whatever. Um, it may be that the costs would be too great. It may be that um, you know, it's just not there yet, but, uh, I would expect it to be, if not this year, the next year in, in the cameras, especially if it's in the forward facing camera this year, it, it makes just as much sense on the rear camera as it does on the front facing camera. 
Yeah. And, and classically in the past, we've gotten things for the rear facing camera first, and then the front facing camera has been an afterthought. Right. Here, it's reversed because the application is specifically around that front facing camera initially. And what I'm excited to see, not only with uh, AR kit, you know, and the capabilities, as you can see now with the demos that are out there, presumably it's going to work better on the iPhone 7 Plus because it's got the dual cameras and has more data. The more data that you can put in there, the better the hardware, uh, the more it's going to give a better AR experience. Um, as we talked before about the 120 hertz display too, um, the ProMotion display on the iPad Pro for more fluid uh, AR experience. So it'll be exciting to see the AR and VR specific capabilities that are built into the new iPhone hardware coming out this fall. Because Apple's already tipped their hand a little bit. They're working on this and they see it as a big deal. So you know that the hardware capabilities are going to play into that of the next generation iPhones. And so the question becomes, like, are we going to see a uh, uh, VR accessories to turn your iPhone into a VR headset, much like um, uh, you can do on Samsung Galaxy phones, that sort of stuff? Um, are we going to start going down that road? Uh, we've talked about this in the past. I don't see Apple making that well, hardware, but I could see them stop, making Stop, 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 stop. Hold up for a second. So Apple purchased a micro LED display company. Well, yeah. Right. But the rumor is that that technology is going to show up first on the watch, not on the phone. Okay. But what is the resolution of the phone display anyway? I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's high. I mean, <laughs> the micro LED technology offers power savings over OLED. So the expectation is that the micro LED could potentially allow, probably not this year, but maybe next year or the year after, for an Apple Watch display that is always on. Yeah. So the iPhone... iPhone 8 is expected to have OLED. iPhone 7S is expected to have L LCD. I almost said LSD. No, it's not going to no. come with drugs. That's a different problem. <laughs> yeah. Now the um, So the, the iPhone 6, 6S, and 7 are 750 by 1334 pixels. Yeah. The 6 Plus and, and the Plus version of those phones is... Uh, 1125 by 2001 pixels. Mm -hmm. So we're not really at a, a 4K display on the actual display of the phone. We can record in 4K, but we can't display it on the phone. Correct. The only devices that you can get that have 4K resolution are the iMacs. I'm wondering if, if micro LED technologies allow us to get to devices that can display this level of resolution. I don't know that the advantage would be as great on an iPhone as it would be uh, well, if you're holding it up close to your face. for Yes, for VR purposes, yeah. Um, the pixel density is the main problem with... Um, I, I mean, f so since you've got it, since you're pulling it up, what is the resolution on a Samsung Gear VR? I will tell you. I mean, it's obviously it's not going to be as good as Oculus Rift or whatever, but... Well, they've changed what display they're using inside the Rift for a, a couple of times. Um... Here's another idea. What if the uh, Apple's v VR kit, you know, hypothetically, um, allowed uh, accessory makers to bring their own displays if they wanted um, and just be powered by the the iPhone over the lightning port, sending necessary data for video? And Using the same old process. secondary display kind of protocol they've had for ages? Why not, right? Yeah. So a Gear VR is 2560 by 1440 pixels. Okay. 
So Apple's would be lower resolution. And um, actually, the Rift is a little bit lower than that. The Rift is 2160 by 1200. So Apple's would be a little lower resolution than that, but there will be ways around it. If, if Apple even wanted to go into this market, I, I think that it's one of those things that's kind of a no-brainer. Create the, the tools just like we see with ARKit. Create the tools for developers and accessory makers to make what they want. It's an untapped market for them. It's not like it's going to be uh, you know, the next big thing for the iPhone, but it will drive incremental sales for sure. It's a feature that some people want. Uh, they're playing to it on the Mac. They should play to it on the iPhone as well. And if screen resolution ends up being the main issue, because certainly the processing power is there, you know, and all the hardware capabilities are there, then allow uh, accessories to plug into the lightning port and not use the native screen on the iPhone and instead have their own displays. Yeah. And this is something that Apple's been sort of, well, leaning towards a little bit with the use of HTC Vive at WWDC. Mm -hmm. And we just saw a demo of HTC Vive working with a Mac powering an ARKit demo. That was really cool, yeah. Some people are messing around with uh, ARKit, showing off stuff that can be done. And uh, a team of developers actually have someone using HTC Vive plugged into an iMac, and they're manipulating building around them in 3D, drawing a flower, and somebody else is holding up an iPhone, and they are looking at what the person is drawing in front of them, in the world in front of them, uh, through ARKit. So Apple's ARKit is actually playing nice with and integrating with HTC Vive on a Mac. Yeah. So the drawing in 3D with Vive is nothing new. That's, sure. that's been done Obviously. for ages. Yeah. But using ARKit and seeing the person rendered as an animated avatar in augmented reality and having that animated avatar also paint whatever the person is painting. It becomes a window. Interesting. It becomes a window to the world that the person in VR is in. You're merging AR and VR. And that's very cool. I mean, imagine that you were uh, collaborating on a project and you were on different sides of the world, you know, uh, whether it was architectural or artists doing art or whatever, or just just playing a game. You know, imagine if you were playing a VR game and your family was around, they had iPads and they had a window to the world that you were currently playing in and they could see it from another perspective. Uh, there's all kinds of really exciting applications. Some of it is just kind of, you know, gee whiz, neat kind of stuff. And some of it could actually, as it matures, become of actual value for people getting work done or doing research or doing whatever. Absolutely. I, I am I am excited about ARKit for all kinds of things. You know, there the um, the other demo that I saw was one where a person was using ARKit and the camera to measure the lengths of walls mm -hmm. and create a floor plan. Now, this is something and, we've been and doing and it gave them the total square footage after they mapped out the whole room. Yeah, and it calculated total square footage after they'd mapped out the whole room, and and that's something that we were able to do on iOS for ages very badly. Right this is the way it should have always been done. This is slick. And the Just ease... holding up the camera, and it captures the start and stop points, it captures where the walls turn, it captures the length exactly. The ease with which that was done from a user standpoint. And from a development standpoint. I mean, this was just announced a month ago, and developers have already created these tools, and they work. Right, and, and so there are applications for tools like those for you know homeowners, for real estate, for all kinds of things. And so I have a big feeling that AR is going to become a part of our lives in ways we won't even really notice. And and AR um, or VR with a screen on your face is a barrier to entry. We were talking earlier about making it frictionless. 
Having a screen that you can hold up and use as a window into another world or as an augmentation of your current world uh, is way more appealing to the vast majority of consumers who don't want that accessory, don't want to strap something on their face, don't want to get motion sick. It, it breaks well, down the, those barriers. The, the motion sickness comes from systems that can't react quickly enough to your physical changes. No, it just and comes from, from the screen. It, there, there are a number of factors that cause the motion sickness. But those factors are, are things that can be dealt with and can go away over time. I, they get better, but some people are just going to get motion sick from it, too. You know, I have a PlayStation VR, and uh, it's pretty responsive. The screen is not as high resolution as some of the other options out there, but uh, th- there's a term that enthusiasts use called VR legs, like like sea legs, like, like you get better with it, you know. Um, but sometimes I'll play it because um, I don't play it that often. And when I do, it's like, oh, God, I just want to throw up. Well, so here are the problems, right? There's the visual quality, there's the motion tracking, there's latency, and there's user lags. So you have to have a wide field of view. If you're going to have immersive VR, the field of view has to be the entire virtual world. And, And the human eye has about 145 degrees of horizontal field of view. So you have to be able to really accommodate that with whatever display thing you're doing. You have to... You know, when you bring a screen closer to your eyes, your screen takes up more of the field of view, but you need to have a greater pixel density. And if you don't have the pixel density, then you see the screen door effect. So you have to overcome that. Um, you have to be able to render all of this. And there are some tricks that can be done. You know, you can you can render things uh, the way that that jpeg or motion jpeg or mpeg kind of do where they they don't redraw every frame all the time they just redraw the frames that have changed but you have to be able to accommodate the horsepower that it takes to run a high quality display that close to the face uh, you have to handle vision correction you have to handle lens distortion uh, there, there are a whole lot that goes into it and i think that vr legs and the the motion sickness come from having not fully addressed all of these these variables that are required for it to be that that perfect experience. And we're getting there. The hardware's increasing, everything's getting better People at People still don't this. want to put a geeky thing on their face. Right, but the geeky thing is not the end game. The geeky thing is uh, sort of a transitional space where we are. No one's walking around with car phones from the 80s that have to have a bag connected to them to hold the battery. I, I understand that, but we're a long way away from having something sleek that you can put on your face for an augmented reality experience. The vast majority of people are going to be very happy just doing it on their phone. Yeah, but we're, we're in this transitional place right now. Sure. It's going to get better, of course. Okay. I just just wanted to make sure that we all agreed that no one's going to be walking around with bag phones or the equivalent of a VR bag phone. <laughs> the the headset, such as it is, gets better. It does, but fashion is very difficult to crack. For the same reason, Speaking, the Apple Watch will never sell as much as the iPhone. Fair enough. One of the things that I would say is that for each new interface that you introduce, the content has to be both good at, at reducing friction, like we've been talking about this whole show, but also has to be something that's uniquely available and works best on the new interface. Mm-hmm. That that you say the watch won't outsell because the phone does many things and does many things better. There are a few things that the watch does better. So that's that's what we need to reach for is what is that unique interface experience that works best in this new form factor. Absolutely. On fashion, which you mentioned, and I'm glad you brought up, yeah. 
the iPhone 8 is rumored to come in four new colors. Yeah, you can take this one with a grain of salt, but one of the rumors that came out, not really much to say on this one other than uh, not not four new colors, but four colors total. One of them will be a new mirror-like shade. Uh, whatever that means, I don't know. Uh, I guess like a glossy, uh, maybe like think jet black, but with an aluminum back uh, is my best take on it. Um, what the other three colors might be, since it wasn't suggested they were new, you know, maybe jet black is one. Uh, maybe then gold and rose gold, and then rather than... We've uh, got a lot of colors currently. We've got jet black, we've got matte black, mm -hmm. we've got... Product red. Silver, we've got red, we've got gold and rose gold. I'm counting six. Yeah, uh, so apparently it's going to go down to four with the iPhone 8. The expectation is that the back may be glass. Um, so, you know, maybe like a shiny... Uh, glass with a aluminum slash mirror look on it. I don't know. That's the rumor. You heard it. That's really all there is to say. Okay. iOS 11. Developer beta 3, public beta 2 mm -hmm. for iOS 11. It's out. If you're a public tester, um, you can install it. You should still consider your options before doing that uh, or at least install on a secondary device but the biggest change here um, and something that you mentioned that you were looking for after the first couple betas uh, is the ability to swipe up to close apps when multitasking slash uh, control center view on the iPad which is a very welcome change uh, before you had to like press and hold and then tap X to close an app uh, this makes it much easier to force close apps or just clear up your app tray definitely I, I welcome that change back. Absolutely. Uh, Bank of America predicts a three to four week iPhone 8 delay. This is not new. I mean, we've heard this for months that it's going to be difficult for them to produce the iPhone 8. It's rumored to cost a lot of money. Um, and as a result, they're not going to be producing a lot. And it's going to be coming out a little later than the other ones. So most people are going to be buying the iPhone 7S because it'll be priced accordingly uh, at the normal prices. The iPhone 8 will be in extremely limited quantities and uh, very expensive. And it may not launch until like a month after it's announced. Now, some analysts are cutting expectations for the quarter based on the notion that it's going to be late. But I, I don't think any of these sales are sales that are actually lost. Right. It just shifts to another quarter. Yeah. The, the problem is, as the narrative changes, the idea before was that the iPhone 8 was going to, you know, push us to like 100 million iPhone quarter type thing. But now that we're hearing, you know, the iPhone 8 is going to be limited, a little more hard to get your hands on type of thing. It's an interesting question, right? If Apple releases a $1,200 plus phone, $1,500, whatever the price is, and we were talking about this all last week, but uh, if they charge that much for a phone, does that make people annoyed and just say, I'll wait for next year? Does it make them say, well, I'll just settle for the 7S? Do they save up money and try to get the 8 and wait for it? I mean, what does it do to the sales of the the mass consumer phone, the not pro model? If the 7S all comes... All of the in, above. I, I don't know. It does all of the above. There, there are some number of people that are going to say, you know what? I, I like it. I like it a lot. But at 1200 or whatever the price is, 7S is the answer. Right. There are some number of people that already have a 6S device and can stand to wait another generation, just as, as there are plenty of people that are still out there on iPhone 6 that have waited this long. Mm -hmm. There are people out there on iPhone 5 that have waited this long and are going to find out very shortly that their 32-bit capable device needs to have an upgrade because they're not going to be able to get any new apps. Yeah. So 
there's there's a complex breakdown that says that all of these things are going to happen to a lesser or greater degree. There are people that are going to upgrade. There are people that are going to wait. There are going to be people that are going to pick a less expensive device. And all of those things will still add up to Apple making a good quarter. Probably. I, I don't think that anything and is going to go by poorly, the way, but... By the way, I own Apple stock, so take that with a grain of salt. But I'm saying that <laughs> I don't believe that any of these delays are going to cause Apple to have a, uh, a bad 2018, for example. I think uh, 2018 looks very good for Apple. I think that uh, no matter what they price that, if they want to charge $2,000 for it, they would sell every iPhone 8 they could make with a new look and all this new technology. The question becomes, how does it affect the 7S? And that's what's going to be more interesting to me as we go into the fall and as these phones are announced and as the sales start to add up. They're certainly going to sell a lot of them. It's without question. Will they be able to grow overall iPhone sales is what Wall Street's going to want to know. I do not own any Apple stock, but as somebody who writes about the company for a living, I follow it, obviously. And Wall Street wants growth, and they want to see iPhone sales go up. Um, will they go up if people see the 7S and go, well, that's not as good as the 8? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know that Apple knows the answer to that. And certainly, uh, they are going to be confident in their decision, but it may backfire on them. It, it could be something that uh, leads to uh, sales being reduced. Now, have, having said that, this is not an Apple is doomed. Like, Apple's going to be fine. They're going to sell a lot of phones. They're going to make a lot of money. They're going to be okay. Uh, but it may end up being a year over year reduction in sales uh, in a launch quarter for the first time, which would be interesting. Yes. Now, Apple is putting in, I'm changing gears here a little bit. Apple's putting a HomeKit marketing display in 46 Apple retail locations. Yeah, so this will be a thing where you can go to the store, connect to their Wi-Fi network, pull up the Home app, and you can see all of the accessories on there. Try it out, mess with the light bulbs, check the camera, that sort of stuff. Uh, an interesting demo um, and smart uh, good use for Apple to push HomeKit. A lot of people don't have HomeKit accessories. They don't know how it works. They have this home app on their phone. They're like, what is this crap? How do I get rid of it? Uh, and Apple's products have always worked best when you go hands-on. Um, you go into an Apple store, they have their Macs and their iPads and phones laid out on a table. You can go up, you can mess around with them. Uh, people that don't have them, can't afford them, can go in there and try and, and, and aspire to buy one one day. Uh, and this is another great example of uh, Apple really understanding how to market those products. What's interesting about this to me is that this is Apple either producing or getting everyone else to participate in producing this demonstration. Right. There are a number of companies shown here. There's the Philips Hue bulbs, the Hunter ceiling fan, uh, other peripherals that are being demonstrated in there. And users can use the phones to toggle on and off instances or, or toggle on and off chained reactions. And to get all of those companies, they must have had to pony up some dollars for producing this thing and participating in it. And it's, it's necessary because in the past, Apple's introduced a technology and gotten partners on board to make the products and then said, okay, partners, there you go. And the partners have had to try and generate buzz around it, generate marketing around it. Yeah. And they've always relied a little bit on Apple saying, well, we're partnering with Apple. Apple will tell people about it. And that's never happened until now. This, this is what's been necessary and this is what's been missing. You know what's going to be really popular in Apple retail stores this fall? Hmm. AR kit apps installed and running on every iPad and every iPhone at the table. Everyone's going to be going in there, pointing their phone down at the table and look at a little dancing guy running around on that wooden table. <laughs> and everyone's going to want to do it. It's going to be a huge hit. Yes, you're absolutely right. 
they couldn't have thought of that at all when they were doing this, did they? <laughs> um, moving on to the the machine learning and artificial intelligence portion of the program, Siri has a commanding lead in users over Google Assistant and Samsung S Voice. Now, it's no surprise to me that Siri has a lead over S Voice, but uh, people haven't taken up Google Assistant as well. I mean, I guess maybe that has something to do with Android fragmentation or their implementation of it. I I don't know. I mean, I think that I, mean, uh, I think Siri and Alexa have certainly won the marketing game. Oh, Siri, stop it! Now it's listening to me. Stop. <laughs> um, I, oh, no, two devices went off. Jeez, come on. Um, I think that uh, she who shall not be named and Alexa um, have certainly won in the marketing department. It's not like uh, people you hear them talking about Cortana in public or. Google Assistant or anything like that. Um, well, Google made the regrettable decision of not giving it a name. Right. You have to give it an endearing name. And the other thing that Google made a mistake with was that they only rolled it out to Nexus and Pixel first. Right. And there, there's no real thing that prevented them from rolling it out to every Marshmallow user in the world. They could have put it on every Android 6 device out there with not a whole lot of work. And we know this because there were tons of hackers that were able to enable it to run on Marshmallow. Right. They should have done this. Or you could take the Samsung approach, put a Bixby button on your new phone, and then don't launch And then Bixby. not ship Bixby, <laughs> yes. Could you imagine if Apple did that, where they were like, here's a new button on our device, but you can't use it for three months. Like, could you imagine uh, the it would be on fire. I mean, you know, it was bad enough last year when the portrait mode didn't ship on the phone, but at least you could use the zoom and, and that sort of stuff on the camera. It wasn't like the hardware had no functionality, but to have a button that does nothing. Oh, come on. Well, and it used to be possible, I believe, to reassign the button to, you have to, to install other functions. App, yeah. Well, now you do. <laughs> Originally, when it shipped, you could just assign it and then they blocked that. And now you have to install an app to be able to do it. It it boggles because they were content. They wanted to reserve it for for Bixby. It boggles the mind. People make all kinds of decisions, not always the best ones. Yeah. Now, the other day was Amazon Prime Day, mm -hmm. and Amazon toll sold a boatload of Echo Dot speakers because they priced them at like thirty bucks. Uh, yes, but they sold a ton of of Echo Dot, and. My perspective is that they wanted to get all the Alexa Dot speakers, Amazon Echo Dot speakers with Alexa out there that they could in advance of Apple's HomePod. I think they want to get them out there. Just They period. want to get them out there anyway, yeah. and this was a good way to do it. But they want to get as many out there as possible before Google Assistant gets going better, before Apple gets theirs out. I mean, I don't think it matters at $350 and being positioned as a music listening device. I think that HomePod is n not going to sell nearly as many uh, Echoes as Amazon does. I think yeah. that that is going to wait for um, Apple to get into a lower end of the market. On the flip side, Amazon is never going to sell as many Echoes as I Apple sells iPhones. And your iPhones are always listening for she who shall not be named. So who's winning, right? Right. Now... Amazon is not taking this lying down. Amazon is working on a flagship Echo speaker that will be a music speaker. Yes, uh, because they want to address all segments of the market. Uh, they want to be all things to all people. Um, you know, they tried to get into the phone game. It didn't work. They tried to get into the touchscreen tablet game. It didn't really work. Um, but this is one where it's working. So, uh, you know, good for Amazon. Um, if you really want to have them listening to you in your home, then you've got options. Well, we know that the main uses for these things so far, 
so far, let's say, have been to ask questions. Yeah. To and, and and by questions, I mean you know the the what's the trivia kind of question? What's the capital of Equatorial Guinea? You know that that sort of thing. Right. Weather. The yeah. A weather and news. Weather's a good one. To play music. Mm-hmm. And then as a third, to control devices in the home. And so that's something that's clearly been lacking when they discovered that that when we all know that, that music is a primary use and the Echo speakers are not primarily music speakers, that if you want to have a good playback from an Echo Dot, you plug it into or pair it with Bluetooth to another speaker. Yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of this for Apple, you know, especially when AirPlay 2 launches... Um, you're gonna have options, and you can always just use your phone, and you still got a yeah. phone. So, you know, Google for their credit, Google's Google Home speaker uh, works with Chromecast. So if you have right. Chromecast audio or Chromecast the the video one connected to a home receiver, then you can get good audio going that way. Yeah, and and Google to their credit does really good whole house audio, multiple speakers, and things like that. I am praying that uh, the Airport Express and Denon receiver that i have get updated to airplay too because i uh, would denon denon sorry i would love to uh be able to dictate to siri to have my music played on a specific speaker but i can't do that currently well we're gonna do a few more articles here and then we'll wrap this episode up for those who are hanging on to the very end i appreciate it the iphone 8 cost we've been talking about this as being a $1,200 device or $1,500 device or some expensive device. I just wrote a little history of Apple's pricing the last few years to give people some historical context because Apple has been going in two different directions on pricing. Their flagship models have been getting more expensive across the board, and they've been also introducing new entry-level models that are more affordable than ever. And so people could tell you that Apple's devices are getting more expensive uh, than ever, and that is true if you're talking about the flagship models. But you could also say that Apple's devices are more affordable than ever. Uh, The $330 iPad is a steal. Um, And, I mean, at that price, it's a no-brainer. The $400 iPhone SE is a steal, and at that price, it's a no-brainer. But also... The iPad Pro um, has a $650 entry price, which is up $50 from last year, and that was up $100 from the previous iPad Air 2. Uh, the MacBook, uh, the 12-inch MacBook, um, comes in much more expensive than the MacBook Air that it replaced. The MacBook Pro with Touch Bar comes in much more expensive than the legacy Retina MacBook it, Pro it replaced. Um, the iMac 4K and 5K up prices uh, run down the list. So... The, the, the iPhone did this as well. They introduced the iPhone uh, 6 Plus, then the 6S maintained the same price at $100 more. And then starting with the 7 Plus, because of the dual cameras, which are exclusive to the larger model, they upped the price by another $20. So it's $120 more than the iPhone 7 um, at each capacity. So Apple's been pushing their prices higher and higher on the premium models. And the suggestion that the iPhone Pro coming out this year would carry the highest entry price of an iPhone ever is not that crazy of a suggestion because while the iPhone currently maxes out at like, you know, $980 or whatever, to get it over a thousand bucks isn't that crazy of an idea. So, you know, I'm of, I'm of a couple of minds about this. You, you heard my hesitations the last time we talked about this. One of the things that's happened in the interim since we last talked about it was that Virtu has collapsed. Now, Virtu was originally uh, a brand created by Nokia. Mm-hmm. 
Virtu made high-end phones that cost a lot of money. They were not necessarily always the most technical of phones. No. But they were well-crafted. And what they what they they were covered with high-end Italian leather, alligator they, skin and yeah, they they were assembled by hand in England by people who were essentially watchmakers. Right. Each phone on a one person's bench, assembled by one person, painstakingly, right? Uh, with with diamonds embedded or inlaid, each thing done amazingly. And and their big proposition was that, besides being a phone, that there was a concierge service that was a part of it. You weren't just purchasing the phone; you were purchasing the ability to pick up and speak with someone and have them do things for you in the world. Mm-hmm. Which was a, a huge value add if that's what you needed, um, and and for a long time they were not very capable phones themselves. They were running they were Symbian soap bars. They were running Symbian, or they were even dumber than that. Right? They were they were not amazing phones. Uh, at the end, there they were using Android for the past couple of years, so that you could do things with them. But you still had the concierge service to them. Now they were quite expensive. You know they they were. Anywhere from around six thousand dollars, for example. Yeah. Or or the signature touch model that was about ten thousand dollars. So they showed that there is at least some consumer market for very very expensive things. They did, uh, but I mean, Apple's never going to charge ten thousand dollars for a phone. I say that they charged know, ten thousand dollars for an Apple Watch. They did, and they got away from it. <laughs> they realized that was a mistake, and they got I'm away. Sorry, from it. but I had to say. Well, I mentioned that in this article that I wrote. You know, just giving some historical context for what's going on here, and and I was just drawing a dynamic between Virtu, which is going out of business, versus Apple, which is about to charge the most that they've ever charged for an for an iPhone. And that's not to say that Virtu going out of business is at all related to Apple. They kind of existed in their own well, market, but they but they proved that there is a consumer that will pay that. True, and will pay that for something that they feel is valuable in that way. So if Apple made an addition iPhone that were gold-plated or, or made of a gold alloy, as they'd made the addition watch, and did, you know, if they did it right, they could probably sell it to that Virtu customer. I, I'm sure. And I'm, and I'm sure that they sold thousands of, of $10,000 plus Apple watches. Um, ultimately, that's not a market that they really want to get into. Um, and I think, you know, the new Apple Watch edition and ceramic with, you know, $1,200 price or whatever it is, is uh, much more palatable to most people. Um, and I think that, you know, something along those lines uh, for an iPhone, not necessarily ceramic as the material, but with a unique material that stands out from the other iPhones would be okay. But yeah, I mean, th- I'm not suggesting that Apple's going to make it a gold edition, you know, uh, that would appeal to Donald Trump type of, you know, high end $10,000 phone. I don't, I don't think that that's the market that Apple wants to go for, but uh, certainly all glass chassis, you know, unique uh, materials that are not found on the lower end phone with a unique look that allows it to stand out and, and be sort of a, a fashion statement in addition to a nice phone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? You can read my musings on appleinsider.com and you can follow me on Twitter at this is Neil N-E-I-L. And I'm Victor Marks. You can find me here on Apple Insider and VMarks on Twitter. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back next week.